0: Uh, someone can correct me later if uh, someone read it sooner. But he has also known the professor for some time and uh, been interested in uh, promoting uh, the the cause. Uh, what I like best about his commentaries are that he seeks to integrate a wide range of historical uh, and other elements uh, in uh, explaining how things are unfolding, and I find them very useful for predicting the end games, uh, the potential end games that are facing us as we hopefully move towards a return to the gold standard uh, in time to save the global economy and our political liberties. Please uh, hold your questions until Daryl has finished speaking and then I'm sure he'll be glad to uh, entertain any questions. Daryl. Thank you. Nathan. Um,
1: In August of uh, 2007, the second session of Gold Standard University Live was held here at the Martinium in the third week. And uh, several of you here today, including Nathan, and Martha and I, were in attendance. And what I remember is, is as we listened to these extraordinary revelations about Boombarek and Karl Menger, <laughs> names to who a lot of us had been unfamiliar, and explanations of the Austrian School of Economics, something was unfolding, and we knew it between lectures we would make our little pilgrimage upstairs to the uh, computer room and all of us each in in their own way would turn on the computer and look to see what was happening because two weeks before, on August 7th a credit contraction had moved across the global economy and the effects of that contraction are still happening today at the time we didn't know what the consequences would be. But I can assure you that everyone here, it was to everyone here, it was not unexpected. You can hear the financial pundits say how it caught them by surprise. This thing was a shock. There was no way to prepare for such a thing. But I would like to say, and I know with certainty, that everyone here at that time who had come to hear the professor may not have expected it to happen on that day or the nature of the crisis to unfold the way it did. But we did expect a crisis to happen. Peter yesterday mentioned the name of John Exeter, his inverted pyramid. John Exter was a central banker. John Exter went to Harvard University in 1939, <coughs> the decade of the Great Depression. And he entered Harvard with the express intention of f- discovering what had caused this catechism collapse what was behind an event that had just frozen economic activity all over the world. And he graduated from Harvard and entered the world of banking. And he did become the governor of the central bank of Ceylon, vice president of City, um, and uh, I think vice president of New York Fed, Federal Reserve. And uh, I subsequently found out that uh, the professor knew John Exter, And he said that what changed Exeter permanently in his view of what was happening was while he was at the Fed in New York, he saw the massive outflows of gold. In 1958 alone, 10% of the United States gold reserves left the country. We had entered the 1950s with the largest amount of gold, monetary gold reserves in the history of the world. Crotius himself held only a small amount of what was held in the United States 21,775 tons of gold was owned by the United States by 1971 we had approximately 7 to 8,000 tons left and owed I, approxim- I, I approximated an additional 38,000 tons in 20 years our 21,775 tons of gold had been pillaged because of an outflow of over 50,000 tons. What amount of gold still remains, and who knows how many, because since 1954, there's never been a public audit of U.S. gold reserves. Never. They have disallowed it. So we don't know how much remains. But we do know that what remains there, remains there only because the United States said, we may owe it, we're not paying it. John Exter called the US dollar, I owe you nothing money. And he predicted it that deflation, a deflationary collapse would be the end game of our economy. He passed away in the late 1990s before it, he got to see it come to pass. <clears throat> we have the privilege of seeing what he did not. So it is true that the vast majority of economists did not see this coming. It is not true that it was not unforeseen. Six months before I spoke at the Gold standard University, session two, at the invitation of the Professor Fekeer. I had presented a 148-page paper before a group of people my close friend had assembled in the United States in which I predicted real estate values would fall 40 to 70 percent and stock market valuations would fall 70 to 90 percent. We're halfway there. And in deference to Sandeep who said that the Dow may in fact rise to well over 30,000. It may in fact, one of my very close associates has the same end game. We differ as to what's going to happen. We don't differ as to the crises. But if the Dow does skyrocket past thirty thousand, it will be at a time I assume when a cup of coffee will cost you twenty-five dollars. The new year is floating. In May of that year, I began writing articles, and in that first week, I predicted that sometime in the summer of 2007, a crisis would happen. A severe financial crisis would happen and would change the financial landscape of the world. I didn't know a credit crisis contraction would happen on August 7th. But I just had a feeling that we were on the edge of something very significant. We'd come to the edge of a cliff that we were about to go over. Now we're here a little less than two years later, and um, I want to read you something from the professor's latest article, the last paragraph, if I may. And the article is entitled, The Marginal Productivity of Debt. And the professor says here in his last paragraph, indeed, the financial and economic collapse of the last two years must be seen as part of the progressive disintegration of western civilization that started with government sabotage of the gold standard. Ben Bernanke who should have been fired by the new president on the day after inauguration for his part in causing the disaster may in the end have the honor to administer the coup de grace to our civilization. Those are weighty words from a monetary scientist. And I concur with the professor in his description that we may in fact be seeing the end of an entire way of life that we've known. And what I would like to do today is put that into a context, into a context of that civilization, and in the context of what this change means, because it is going to happen. I, I, when I first began reading the professor's work and seeing what he was doing. I had, I had the, 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 it occurred to me that the example might be that he was a structural engineer, um, a structural engineer uh, regarding the structure of finance. And he understood stress loads, capacity, he understood many, many things that such engineers understand about the nature of the systems of which they're expert at. And in the United States, there was a bridge uh, going across a lake uh, near Minneapolis or something. And, and it, it, I think it gave way in the last year, maybe two years ago. And a lot of people died. And it was found out that in 1991, that defect was discovered in the bridge. Structural engineers had said, there's a crack. It's a fissure. And nothing was done. They said, this is something should be attended to. Nothing was done. Um, I can assure you that that bridge was necessary to the movement of people in and out of the city of Minneapolis. And to have fixed the bridge would have caused a great deal of problems and cost and whatever. You can ignore problems, you can deny problems, you cannot avoid their consequences, however. And what I want to put forward today is, is that we're, in, we're, we're here together, and we are here together, uh, at an ex- extraordinary time in, in history and in our lives, and we've only just begun. Peter said yesterday that this is going to be a horror, and he's right. And um, I'd just like to step back and sort of say... Uh, and you have to choose a point at which this began to unfold and um, there's an extraordinary book because we all know about paper money gold etc 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 but to give you some background of where it it sort of appeared here there's an extraordinary book called um, Fiat Paper Money The History and Evolution of Our Currency by Ralph Foster and he says that paper money um, first appeared in China and it did Why did the Chinese first come up with paper money? Well, and you read it and you realize it was as simple as they were the ones who discovered paper and ink. The two prerequisites of paper money. Nothing else. Nothing else. All right? And you're reading his history, how it occurred, and it didn't start out as a sham. It didn't start out as as a confidence game. It didn't even start out as a government attempt to spend monies that they did not have what happened in, in china is that they had trading houses they had you know private you know sort of banks they had financiers and, and, and money was you know it's heavy it's dangerous to move okay and these people trusted each other so they would write notes to each other, like IOU, the and they and they, they knew, you know, you'd be in, you know, the Wongs had been in or, or a certain city, you know, they were bankers, and I, I you know, I'm Mr. Li from another city, Shandong or something, and I get a little note from them and it says credit to my account, and I, and I would, I trusted them, I knew it was, I knew the piece of paper was authentic. <clears throat> the Chinese called it flying, flying money, because its advantage was it could be over long periods of, large periods of distance, it was light, and it could be transparent, and they knew. So they would credit and they would settle these things up. That's how it started out. It started out as a financial instrument. Eventually, it became, quote, money. There's a difference between a financial instrument and money. There's a huge difference. And in 2009, we no longer know what that difference is. We, in fact, use financial instruments, pieces of paper, IOUs, and call that money. It was not so, and how it became so is a rather extraordinary story. the um, the The news of the of this paper money first came to the West um, through Marco Polo. All right, and he and his uncles had made a long journey to the court of Kublai Khan, and came back and. Um, The Khan, the great Khan, had given gifts to Marco Polo to deliver to the head of the kingdom of where it was. And it was Venice. So it was the Doge, okay? And the Catholic Church. And what did he come back? What did he show up with? Well, let me read you here. The Emperor of China, who we call Kublai Khan, gave to the Polos a camel loaded with 1,000 cash paper notes as a gift for their sovereign. The doge, the chief magistrate of Venice, and the cardinal, the pope's cousin, looked at these notes in awe and dismay. (laughs) The hand-scratch writing was not in Latin or Greek, but in a secret language, most likely the language of the devil. (laughs) They proceeded to burn these notes And accused Polo of heresy. If only we had the foresight to have done the same. (laughs) He wrote about this paper money in his book. And of all the tales that he brought back from China, this was the most astounding. I mean, he could talk about camels and castles and armies and silks or whatever he did. But paper money, this is how he wrote about it. And I, and I think if you put yourself back in that time and read this yourself, you would have the same feelings. Book 2, chapter 24. How the great Khan causes the bark of trees made into something like paper to pass for money all over his country. My God, if that's not absurd, I don't know what is. He makes them take the bark of a tree, in fact, of the mulberry tree, the leaves of which are the food of silkworms, these trees being so numerous that whole districts are full of them. When these sheets have been prepared, they are cut up into pieces of different sizes, of different words, and all these pieces of paper are then issued with as much solemnity and authority as if they were of pure gold or silver. Wow. Money. Okay. Uh, He did note, however, that the great Khan had issued a decree that the people of the empire were disallowed from using gold or silver. Disallowed. You could not use it in payment of debt you're required to use these little pieces of paper. Marco Polo did note, however, it that the legal tender. legal tender, exactly, legal tender, you can only use this. He did note, however, that the Khan's treasury was filled with gold and silver. All right? And this is, this is quite wonderful here. Okay? This is from another person. This was from Giovanni Decoro who also knew something about China and he talked about the Kublai Khan. Then the emperor refuseth justice to no man, Kublai Khan, or Khan. Be thanks be to God Almighty. He delivereth the prisoners and bestoweth his mercies and acts of compassion on all manner of people who had need thereof and require a favor at his hand. Only there be three manner of folk to whom he rendereth never mercy. To wit, one such as who hath laid violent and reprobate hands upon his father or mother. Two, such as hath forged the king's money, which is a paper. And three, such as hath done anyone to death by giving him poison to drink. To these three rendereth he never mercy. This is a fiat system, one of the first. First of all, you require paper money is the only legal tender. You withdraw all gold and silver from circulation, okay? And your treasuries are filled with it and everybody else is using paper, okay? The Chinese had a serious the emperor, empire had a series of experiments with, with paper over the next few hundred years. Each one ending in failure, each one ending in currency debasement, each one ending with governments printing more money than they had for each one entering in inflation, which destroyed the dynasty. By the 1600s, the Chinese outlawed, the Song Dynasty outlawed forever, or whatever that means, the use of paper money. In the next century, these people from England showed up with English pound notes. All right? It's like a bad penny. You just can't get rid of that stuff. This is where we are today. We, are, we have reached the end of an empire built on paper money. What you see around you in every country now is connected to paper money. It is as if the doctors had drained the economic body of all the real blood and put in their own, their own fake plasma that goes around. And the ubiquity of the blood is that it goes everywhere. It goes to the brain. It goes to the adrenals. It goes to your kidneys. It goes to your liver. It goes to your foot. It goes to your finger. It goes to your ear. It affects everything everywhere. It is everywhere. And that's why I say this depression is going to be the worst depression ever. Because it was never so. What happened in the 1930s was, was extraordinary. John Exeter suffered tremendously, and he saw the suffering tremendously of it. In what, In fact, what caused me to even start thinking about these things was my father's experience. He you could tell, I mean I'm 65, 64, it doesn't matter at my age, uh, but you, I knew the effect that this period had on him, and I would hear stories, as one of his brothers told me that when my father was, he walked uh, five miles or some long distance to save a nickel, which was worth a lot more then, on some vegetables he was buying. That's pretty intense. He put himself through college, as most of his brothers and sisters did, which was very difficult at that time. He had a tri- tremendous willpower. He, he overcame those obstacles. But they were brutal times. We're, my feeling is, and I, and I began looking at what caused it. That, that was my original question. I was not a monetary scientist. I was not an economist. I had no idea what financial instruments were when I started looking at these things. I had no idea about bond markets, the consequences. I had no idea about central banks. My joke about people central banks is my idea of a central bank was much like most people is today. A central bank must be a bank that's located in the central district of your town. I knew nothing about it. I started out with a question. What caused the Great Depression? What caused such a breakdown of commerce that even though there were needs to be fulfilled, no one could fulfill it. And my conclusions started, they happened at the right time. They really did. By the time the dot-com bubble burst, I had begun to see the similarities of the late 1990s run-up in the United States with a run-up during the late 20s in the United States. It was only later that I discovered that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, had been introduced in the United States 20 years before the things started getting out of hand. It was like an amplifier had been put into a virus. The virus itself was paper money. The central bank was the amplifier and the intermediary system that gave credit arising from credit-based money. When I first began looking at this, I had no idea what these answers were. I had no idea what the factors were. But as it began to fall into place, it became more and more disturbing. When I ran across the professor's papers, it was like seeing a breath of fresh air. I remember remember one of the first things I I read about when he talked about what what happened then and now, when you get deflation, that they're going to start pushing credit out of the market through the intermediaries, which are the banks. But the banks know that their customers aren't defaulting right and left and they aren't getting any better. So what would you do in that situation? Would you loan money, credit, to people who are already in trouble, in increasing trouble, increasing danger? No. You'd keep it, stick it in a bond that pays you an interest, and take the middle. So it doesn't matter, he said, how much they put out there. It's going nowhere, except in the profits of the banks. And lo and behold, it started happening. They slashed credit down to 1% after the collapse of the dot-com bubble. okay, To prevent another Great Depression. And this brings me to another metaphor about the Khan's people, Genghis Khan. Uh, Marco Polo was over there and he was at the court of Kublai Khan. Well, I think it was his grandfather, or maybe his father, Genghis Khan, uh, who made Hannibal Lecter look like I mean when the Mongol horde swept across out of Asia there was blood and they had it perfected they would wipe out a town horrifically and let a few loose whereupon those loose people would run to the next town and show up absolutely in a state of shock whereupon they would tell the people there what had just happened to them and sure, a couple days later, over the hill came the Khan's armies. And they didn't meet a people who were ready and prepared to deal with these hordes. They met a people who were just freaked, running, afraid. And so they progressed across the steppes of Asia, into Europe, without any meaningful defense. <clears throat> In a city, I, and I don't know where it was, but in Poland, every year in a certain city, they, they uh, celebrate the defeat of the Mongol hordes. <laughs> it was a, a battle where the hordes had come and, and they arrayed against them and they defeated them and the Mongols left and went back home. Well, the truth of the matter is it never happened. The battle never happened. They never defeated the Mongol hordes. It is true the Mongol hordes left, okay, but they weren't defeated in battle. Why they left was the news of Genghis Khan's death had finally reached them across the thousands of miles that they had just blunderously wiped off the face of the earth. Time to go home. Dad's dead, and they went back. All right. But well, what they left in this little city in Poland was, oh, man, we, uh, we we took care of the guy. not that great You know, what some strength. And, you know, I, I guess they probably even had stories of people began telling stories how they vanquished the hordes. This is much what happened after the Great Depression. When the economy collapsed in the 1930s, it never started of its own accord. They did everything then that they're doing now. Oh, they didn't do quantitative easing. They would have done it if they'd known it. And it wouldn't have worked either. But they tried everything in their trick bag. They were stunned. It was dead water on it. Take the money out. Oh, it's like real liquidity. Still later. there. Oh, stuck the money's pocket. You know, let's get some. Still later. The That damn thing wouldn't get out. It wouldn't move. And then horror of horrors. The war happened. Boom. They stumbled out of the war. Things started going on again. And you know what the economists did? Wow, we vanquished the beast. The Mongols had left. Must have been something we did. I wonder what it was. But it was, they're gone now. Okay? And with a decade or two under their belt, they began to feel better that they had done these things. That must have been maybe the FDIC or Glass Steagall or something they had done back then. It, it, it's gone. Oh, whew, whew. It's gone, right? Well, 1989, Japan happened. I remember Paul Krugman, who was just awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics. Reading something he said. He's a Princeton boy. All right? Princeton. That's where these, they put out this paper mill, the Georgia Pacific of economists. Weyerhaeuser. And Krugman said, when he heard what had happened in Japan, he said a tremor went through the uh, monetary establishment. There was a whiff of something in the air that they thought had been dispelled. Deflation. The very thing that John Exter had been warning about for twenty years. Peter mentioned Paul Samuelson. It's an economist. Just came out with another book. John Exter recounted a conversation he had with Samuelson, who was down the hall with him at the time, arguing this very point about deflation, gold, money, paper. And it ended up with Samuelson saying, yes, this did, Mr. Extra. You know, John, you may be right, but you're lonely. Well, that's a pretty crappy answer, but it's the only one he had, because he had no answer, and they still don't. Bernanke, at Milton Friedman's 92nd birthday, or 90th birthday, turned to him and he said... Because of this great man here, whose birthday we are celebrating, we will never again have another depression. And the crowd broke down in A little early, I might add. Okay. What happened in Japan was a collapse of another bubble, so large that it sucked Japan into a deflationary spiral. Just this morning, I thought about you know because now people are like, man, you know, we're going to put two trillion dollars. We we're talking about trillions, you know, pumping more money into the economy. Pumping, more. how are we going to pay for it? How oh, are we going to borrow from? are oh, going to borrow from there? Government revenues. We're going to cut our. We're going to cut our taxes. whatever we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. But I do know one thing. The deflationary collapse of Japan's bubble happened in 1990, 1990 1989, which is approximately 19 years ago. I know that two years ago, in 2007, government revenues in, in Japan were 50% of what they were in 1990. The Japanese borrowing, their government borrowing for GDP is the highest in the world. Their savings rate is also the highest in the world. But their government ratio of debt is the highest in the world. Why? Because what they've been doing for nineteen years is bar bar to try and stay even trying just to stay even we don't have that and I speak of the United States that possibility Japan has the highest savings rate in the world the United States has no savings Japan made it through the last 20 years or so because of an extraordinary export driven economy that brought it savings of others into its coffers to pay down to keep them afloat. The United States has the largest outflow of goods in the world. And it's no mistake, these people ruined the system that had lasted for so long. But it was a system that was built on fraud and deceit and it's been there for so long that we don't even question the fraud of deceit. We've, I mean, what is it? I mean, isn't this how economies work? Isn't this how economies work? Sandeep had a book uh, by Bumberi. That's a book. A name I only heard at that second session of Gulf Center University from Professor Fekete. And it was called the positive. The, what is it? The value of positive. value positive. What is it? A positive capital. He, he and he said. He looked at me the other night. He said, "Doesn't that about sum everything up? The value of positive capital before this round of paper money came into being, capital was always positive." Mr. Ryan. How much capital you made? To? Oh, I got so many florins and golds. How much, Oh, I got a little bits of silver. What do you have? Why well, some lump, You know, this is my cap, My labor is my capital. It's what you have to offer. It's there. Okay. After the British paper-based money came into being, capital wasn't positive. It was debt. It was an I O U. Everybody in this room. Everybody in this world. Everybody on this planet that has a pension plan and annuity are holding IOUs of companies that are headed into bankruptcy. You no longer have savings to fall back on. The world has no cushion. It's a bed of thorns. We merely have not yet lain back on that. That's the difference. That's why when the professor writes, we are at the end of Western civilization, what he's saying is, we have not yet fallen upon the thorns that they created. The fact that it was in abeyance, the fact that we indebted those not in the room, the future, our children, we have given them a a platter of disaster. They have no way out of the present system. There is no way out. And these seeds were in there since the very beginning. It was only a matter of time till it was going to come to fruition. Edwards Deming was an extraordinary man. He was, he was a physicist, but again, he was a systems guy. And he was responsible for the transformation of Japan's industrial base after World War II. And Marshall, a person who, you know, know, the professor and I know, Martha, he was very close to Edward Deming's. And and Marshall told me that one of Deming's precepts was the first 15% is what matters. Because out of the first 15%, the 85% will come as a matter of consequence of the first 15. So what's in the first 15 is going to manifest in the later 85%. The first 15% of the system was an abomination, was a lie, was a fraud. It took approximately 300 years for all the gold and silver backing to be stripped out. All right? Didn't happen in the beginning. In the beginning, they tried to keep it there, tried to make it look like it was all right. So here's some uh, pound sterling, this good as paper. Oh, it is? Uh, yeah. yeah, go down to the bank. Get sterling for it. Walked down there and he gave him a piece of paper. They had him said, sterling. <laughs> Well, that only lasted for a while, and they knew that as soon as people were confident, they wouldn't even be going down there asking for paper, for gold and silver. They knew that. All right, Martha and I were, we went through the little tour at the Bank of England. You know, we, were, we were there. We were curious about this place. You know, sort of like the devil's cistern. At least our attitude was we're going through this little self-guided tour of the bank. And, and, and we, we, I noticed something that, that was, I was reminded by the Great Khan's monetary policy. And, and what it was was that um, uh, when they brought out their paper money, uh, they publicly executed anybody who was uh, making copies. Just like the Great Khan. It's a very, very efficient way to get people to accept your paper. And to preserve the integrity of your paper. If other people could make their own pieces of paper too, it would be an attack on the integrity of the coin of the realm. What I call the coin of the realm is the con of the realm. What's absolutely important, what's absolutely they're afraid of, is everyone finding it out. And I have come to conclusion, it's a specious fear. It's a specious fear. You know, for those of us who sat there and went like this, and I'm sure that's what you, you can understand. I'm late to this game. Late to this game. And only my compassion for the professor can make me realize at an early age he's weak. He goes, This is a fraud. It's a fraud. No one will hear? Me. At least we have us here. He would say that no one will listen. Okay? No one wanted to hear. Shop! And the thought was, in a time more innocent, that if only everybody knew, if only people realized the truth of what was going on, it would change. Well, I do have a tendency towards cynicism, but I think it's justified. They're not going to. They're not going to realize it. It's not going to find out. The change is not going to happen because all of a sudden, people are go, "You know, this is quite a- I, there's nothing do. it. I don't care if it's it on. They're not gonna go back and find out when paper money got issued, how central banks spread, or who's behind it, how interest gets made, how they create it out of thin air, how there's a Ponzi scheme going on, in fact between the Fed and the Treasury, how they're buying their own crap and making it look like other people. No. It's a fact that those things are going on, it's a fact that those are truths. It's not gonna happen that people are going to understand it and dispense with this illusion under which we've been under the spell under. That's not how it's going to happen. That's not how the fraud is going to be removed. The fraud is going to be removed because they blew it up. In that first 15% was the seeds of their own destruction. They went a lot further than anybody had ever gone before. The fact that they are still poking at it, quantitative easing, I mean, when you really look at it, why wouldn't they? It had never fallen apart before, even when it did, it somehow started up on its own again. And they're so advantaged by it. The people in charge of the system, the bankers and the government, are so advantaged. There's a notion that these people are there to help you. There's a notion of, that these people have an the system to take care of. The truth of the matter is, they are your jailers. Profiting by your enslavement. And you're paying these people for the food they give you. And you don't know it. You don't know it. This is ambulatory enslavement. They create money out of nothing. And they loan it to you and give it to you at an interest that compounds instantly. Interest. Of course interest is deserved. If you have money that you've earned and put it back on the table, you should get interest on it. But interest was something you didn't earn it, it never existed. Where's the justification for that interest? You need none, except it serves the institution that gave you the license to issue that paper, which is government. What you have right now is a collusion between bankers and government to keep the system going. Bankers get profits, governments get power. Here we are. And now we're watching this thing go down. And it is going to be painful. It is going to be beyond anything we have seen. We have never got the whole world on this bed of thorns. We have not gotten everybody's future destroyed by it. I remember a couple years ago, even before the credit contraction happened, there was nervousness floating around. Sort of like that thing in the old western movies where they're coming in and it's the cavalry's coming in, they're coming in, and they're going through Indian country. Indian country. And they're looking around, and somebody goes, It's a little too quiet. Okay. A little too quiet. Well, that's the way it was in 2006, 2005. Where's the risk? Looks like we can make money anywhere. Wow, where's the limits? They started getting nervous. And they thought, Oh, well, you know, if the United States falls, we can decouple. Asia can be coupled from the United States. Europe can be coupled from the United States. We'll survive. We'll make it. Well, nah, didn't work. Then later on, the idea of, wow, oh, well, you know, the United States is consuming all this money. Of course, they're going to crash. UK is going to crash. Iceland is going to crash. Estonia's going to crash. All those kind of countries are going to crash. Spain's going to crash. But the exporters, Japan, and Germany, they make things. They export. 50% drop. In exports in the last 6 months Japan, alright this country is in a deficit now there's no way out, there's no way out they now have that huge debt that's left over from 1990 since then no way to take themselves out of it and the rest of the world is going down, they can't sell to anybody, they're not going to make it out either, we're all going down together This didn't happen in a vacuum and it doesn't happen without a context. We are here at the end of a volume, of a series of volumes. I used to look at it and say, you know, you know how you're reading a book and you tell at the end of the chapter things are sort of writing up, you know, and you get to that page and you turn it over and there's a blank page on the left and the next chapter starts and it there's a sense of finality to it and you're on to your next thing, okay? And then, when you get to the end of a book, it's really final. You may be set up, oh, God, this thing's gone, you know, but it resolved itself. and went on. Blah, 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 okay, We are not at the end of a chapter. We're not at the end of a book. We're in a series of volumes. Okay? The series of volumes. What the professor called the end of Western civilization, or civilization as we know the end of the world as we know it. Now, what I am saying may sound rather doubtful, but there's a, a lining to this. There's a future on the other side of this. That's what's going to happen. When I wrote my book, um, uh, I, took so, I had something written in the foreword, and I took it out. Uh, and I don't know if it was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. But well, I took it out because it was a very black patois, you know. Get you know black, Mike, Mark, you know Mark Twain and the slaves and stuff like that, Jim. Blah 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 blah. But it went something like this: "Missy, Missy, I seen it. I seen it. What you seen, Jim? I seen the promised land. You have seen it? Yes. What was it like? It was beautiful, more beautiful than I've ever seen." It was paradise. It's Land. It's Land. What's wrong, Jim? What's wrong? Because between us and the promised land is the River Jordan. And I've never seen the river run this high before. It's going to overflow, you see. I've never seen it run this high or this dangerous. There it was. And here we are there is something on the other side of this there's a reason why this chapter is ending there's a reason why this epoch is over and there's also a reason why all of us are here during this time All right. when i first gave my talk a couple years ago i mentioned a guy named um, David Hackett Fisher and he's a western historian, an economic historian and he, had, he, had, he said that um, if you look at prices, they, they, he says you have these periods of tremendous stability and they'll last for 80 to 100 years or whatever it is. And these periods of stability have names attached to them, the feudal age, the renaissance, the enlightenment, the age of, you know, Victorian, blah, 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 blah. And during these times, prices are very stable, rents, food, are very, very stable. He says but between every one of these periods of stable prices and eras, epochs, are what he calls waves, he calls them great waves. And they start out like this and they increase as the wave reaches, its culminates in its end. And he said these waves all last between 80 and 120 years and they all end in economic collapse. Boom. And they're accompanied by other crises as well. Black Plague happened between the Feudal Age era and the Renaissance. The Hundred Years' War happened along with another great wave. All right? And he called the last era of stability the era of Victorian equilibrium. I looked at it with my background. I said, This is the age of paper money. Okay? And David Hackett Fisher said, The wave that was ending the era of Victorian equilibrium started in 1896 prices started to move 1896 and he wrote his book in 1996 and he said this great wave is greater in amplitude than any wave he has ever seen before alright these waves last anywhere from 80 to 120 years 1896, Uh, we're within 10 years of the longest it lasts. And I think everybody has a feeling in this room that it is between here and there, and maybe closer than we think. Because it can happen at any time, all right? My feeling is this, and I'm not saying I'm right, none of us have a crystal ball and any conjecture about the future is conjecture. John Exter's prediction of a deflationary collapse was conjecture until it happened. All right? But my feeling is this. There is this collapse, and I I believe this even before I started looking at economics, before I started looking at finance, before I started looking at money, before I started looking at this deflationary collapse that's happening that may end up in a hyperinflationary boom, somehow it's going to end itself but it's going to clean the slate for what is to come next. And there is something that's going to come next. Alright? And like all of the intervening epochs, the movement from the feudal age to the renaissance, the renaissance to the enlightenment, what Hackett Fisher, David Hackett Fisher pointed out, there were levels of greater integration of humanity. Levels of where the consciousness, their understanding of each other, was different than what preceded it. Before this era started, the English were over there, the Chinese were over there, the South, they I mean, nobody. It was sort of, there were rumors of other people and very few people saw them, okay? Now we're on the same page. Now, I mean, my site, Dr. Shu, we have a statistics thing, 40% of the hits are outside the United States. It's, we're on the same page of a book that's about to end. But there's a new thing coming. And my belief is this, is that, you know, um, there's a a, a political scientist I just heard about, uh, Mancur Mancur Olson. He was born when the Great Depression started in 1932, died in 1999. And he studied groups. And he said that what happens in any stable situation is that groups start forming private interest groups. And he said the nature of groups is this, that the tendency of people is to remain individuals, but they will form into groups. And the greater the tendency to form into a group is a private gain will be accomplished by the formation of a group. Doctors formed into a group called the AMA, restricting the amount of physicians in a country. The American Manufacturing Association, Formed into a group, the so California avocado growers formed into a group and prohibited the importation of any avocado into California with a fat content less than the hot avocado which the Californians grew, and the other avocados that came to Florida couldn't be brought in. So you have groups forming, fighting over power and money in that society. And Manker also pointed out is that when this thing. Less and less progress happens, less and less movement happens, and he says when the greatest progress happens, when the groups, when society falls apart, the collapse of a structure is the prerequisite for great movement forward. Because over time, stability gives rise to stasis, and life is not about stasis though our fragmented ego would certainly wish it was. There's a part of me that still wishes it had never flared out into the uncertainty that it has. But that wasn't my choice, and it's not the choice of anybody in here. It's not the choice of history, it's not the choice of us as individuals. It's just the fear of the fragment itself. that, oh, god damn, what's gonna happen to me tomorrow? But we are part of something that's moving forward, you can't, Just as much as extra could not name when it was going to happen, but what he saw it was going to happen, we are moving forward into something that's greater. That's something that's going to subsume everything that we put together in this time and move to a, another higher, more integrated level. Buckminster Fuller, in 1981, in his, one of his last books, called The Critical Path, and he said humanity is on the verge of a crisis. And if we don't pass the test, the universe may just decide to be done with us. All right? But he said this. He called the foreword to his book, The Critical Path, Twilight of the World's Power Structures. He wrote this book in 1981. Within a decade, the Soviet Union collapsed. 30 years later, capitalism gone. Bankers, paper, bass, and money collapsing. And Bucky said that this crisis that we're entering is a universally intended crisis. It's intended. It's not an accident. I mean, sure, they pulled gold out of it. Sure, they did this. Sure, they put paper in Sure, they did all these things. Sure, they didn't, decided not to regulate credit default swaps. Sure, they decided in 1999 to repeal Glass-Steagall. All these things were done. But what Bucky said was this, the crisis that we're entering is a universally intended crisis designed to transform humanity from its present, competitive, differences-based reality into an interdependent, interharmonious whole. Well, folks, look around. Do you know what kind of crisis it's going to take to get us to that level? it ain't gonna happen in the context of what we got now but Bucky said it could between us and that Beulah land is the crisis that we are right now on the edge of and you know I I read, somebody showed it to me, or I happened across it, there's this blog called George Washington Blog And the guy was talking about doom and gloom. And he said, who is the real Dr. Doom? Gloom and doom. And he went through Noriel Rubini, you know. He said, but Rubini, you know, feels that, you know, blah, blah, it's going to go down. He went through Mark Faber, and Faber's always saying, you know, he started to call the doom and gloom report, Dr. Faber out of Hong Kong. He says, but Dr. Faber, one of his sidelines is saying, um, there's always a, a, a bull market somewhere. And he went through all these people and he came down to the bottom and there was me and Gerald Clinton. And he said, Mr. Shinnon feels that there's the end of civilization. <laughs> Which was echoed. <laughs> Which was said in his paper by Professor Fekete. And I do believe that there is going, we are on the verge of the end of the world as we know it. But I also believe it's the precursor to the new and better world that will emerge to take its place. And um, I was gonna say, I would like to leave you on that note of hope, but it occurred to me that's not real hopeful. It doesn't sound hopeful, but it is. My sense is this, and I may be wrong here, that what we are in, time and space, is a derivative reality. The Hindus call this reality Maya. The Greeks called this the shadow reality. The shadow, that's what Socrates and Plato called it, the illusion. We see this illusion, we think it's real. That's what an illusion is it's a derivative reality of a greater reality, of a true reality just like our dreams are derivative of this reality when you're in your dream state you think it's real and the only reason you know ultimately it's not real you wake up with a cold sweat and you look around and go oh good you know but right before then it was real in that same way this is derivative reality that we haven't woken up from and there's a reason we're asleep Because when you're asleep, you play it like it's real. You make those choices. You think. You don't have that, oh, I'm gonna wake up from this thing. Let's push this button. No, we're playing it like it's real. And so we do. And so by our own choices as we move into this crisis, we're playing it like it's real. And I suggest that you continue to do so. Because it's going to increase in intensity, it's gonna increase in amplitude before it breaks into what it's gonna become. And, there's, you know, things happen that that show you that it's not this chaotic thing that we think it is, that the that the fragmented derivative mind thinks it is. And just as a story to end it up, is in February I received an in e- email from a gentleman who I'd never known before, named Sadiq Jaiti. Right over there, okay. <laughs> he says. Uh, I'm going to be at that conference and here's, uh, I'd like to look at these papers, you know, blah, 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 blah. So I opened up my attachment and, I, and he said, I'd like to see, you know, hear your criticism. And I looked at it and I read the first page and I thought, holy shit, I'm going to have to think about this. I can't, it was, it was so, it was not, it was, you couldn't just give a, you know, blah, 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 blah. It wasn't capable of it. So I said, I can't do you the disservice to some degree, and I'll have to look at it in, in, you know, when I have the time to do it. Well, be that as it may, as Philip and Martha and I were on the train to Zambitai, Martha goes, Daryl, you've got two hours. You haven't read it yet. All right? So I pull it out, and I start reading you know, Sandeep's paper. And I go, my god, this is amazing. This is amazing. Look at this guy. And I'm telling Philip. He uses this word, concatenation, and he doesn't even tell you what it is, he's making you assume that that maybe you know, and he knows that you don't know at some level, alright, and it's just fascinating, the points that he's taking, it was brilliant, and I said this reminds me, the writing of Peter Warburton, a book I had read called Debt and Delusion, extraordinary book, that I've only gotten into, I've had it for six months. I had it for six months. This thing is extraordinary. I've made my way into like two chapters. It's it's wonderful. He he lays bare that the Huns left, but they didn't. He lays bare the fact that we thought that the sleeping deflationary, or inflationary beast, merely because the smoke wasn't coming out of the cave, it hadn't died in the night. Warburton clearly showed why we thought so, and it was about to come out, and he'd written this book in 1999 before the beast came out, and we drove it back in the cave with more liquidity. Well, it went back in that cave, sucked up all that liquidity, and it's now out there again, and they're trying to throw more liquidity at it to put it back in the cave. Huh. All right, wow. Well, so I said, you know, Sandeep's writing reminded me of the kind of thinking of Peter Warman. We meet Sandeep later that afternoon. And I tell him about this. And he says, oh, well, I know Peter. I said, you know Peter? He said, yeah. I told me I met him, Medical, you, know, the, you know, financing, stuff like that. He says, when are you going to be in London? And I said, oh, Martha, I'm going to be there. You know, the, he said, okay, it's too soon, but next time we'll get together. I said, oh, that's fascinating. He knows Peter Wolf. This, you know, this man, this extraordinary book he wrote called Debt and Delusion. Beautiful book, beautiful book. So the next day I gave the professor of my company. All right? And I said, I want it back before I leave, but I want you to look at this, all right? This is really an extraordinary book. And the next thing he tells me, he says, or later that day, he says, this is really quite good. All right, this is really quite good. And later on, I'm talking to Sandy, and he tells me, he says, you know how I first heard about the professor? I said, no, how? He said, Peter sent me one of his essays. Peter said his essays in 2003, we're not in this room by mistake. The fact that we can't see the threads, I mean, I, I remember when uh, the professor was invited to speak at the University of Chicago, he, he told Martha and I said, listen, you guys want to come? I thought, holy smokes, it's a trap, <laughs> we're going to get in there, we going to stab him, put him in the back room, and you know, they're going to get rid of him. It was like Martin Luther going to talk to the Vatican. I mean, holy smokes. And so we showed up. I wonder what was going to happen, what he was going to say. And Friedman dies the day before. Perhaps that's how afraid he was. (laughs) That you were going to besmirch his reputation on his grounds. And he knew he was at the end of his rope anyway. I mean, he was 93. He didn't have a lot left in in that thing. But he chose the day before to exit this plane. And with the decency and kindness that the professor has, he chose not to use that rare opportunity to attack a dead man. And my theory is, what better time to attack someone? He was above that. Spoke on other subjects generously. And there it was. It was gone. But I, I told him I said, you know, this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. That the, the example, the the ball, the golden calf of the golden era has passed away. And truth has moved in, is now coming back. And the fact that Friedman died, you're here on his turf, is a sign that things are beginning to move in the other direction. And I believe in those signs. I believe in the connections, even though we can't see them. And it's quite possible that I'm making this thing up. That I'm in this personal miasma of consciousness and destiny and history and whatever. But I like to put it out there that it's a possibility that I'm not making it up. That these times are indeed significant. That we are, each of us, much more than we believe ourselves to be. And that much good is going to come out of the crisis that is at hand. And the fact that you and we, I and all of us are aware of the crises puts us in a different position than the others who don't know about it. Because when you know about something that's coming, you're able to do something about it and to be of assistance and help in a way that you would otherwise not be able to be. Phil Barton was here two years ago and listened to the lectures on Carl Menger and Bumberic. And who would have thought that two years later he'd be thinking about moving to Vienna and opening the Gold Standard Institute to bring truth and enlightenment back into the world of paper money? Who would have thought that the world would fragment in that amount of time to allow the reintroduction of truth to the degree that it has today? But it has come to pass. And we are here and I just want to say that I am so grateful to the professor for giving me this opportunity to speak. And for all you apostates who have come here on the fringes of economic disorder. And uh, I hope I haven't bored you. Thank you.
0: much, Daryl. We have about uh, 20 minutes for questions. If uh, Go ahead, Reg. I have
2: two comments. One well,
1: there is really a very simple solution to this whole <laughs>
0: <laughs> Reg,
1: alcoholism has been tried for centuries. It can delay the awareness of consequences. But there are, it has its own consequences. No, all that needs to be done is
2: for the Treasury to declare bankruptcy.
1: You know, my mother had the same idea about my study habits. Daryl? All you have
2: to do is apply yourself. Who? Then buy 10 cents on the dollar. I got it. It's finished. Something's going to happen. Okay.
1: Something's going to happen. The other comment that I have
2: is about the difference between now and 1930, which is, uh, I, I, I haven't seen it. Once. 1930 United States, at least New York, where I was at the time, uh, there was a real estate boom. The building, which of course now there's no such thing. Uh, My father and other people that I've known uh, had work, lots of work, and uh, it was all in construction. There's a tremendous amount of construction that was going on in 1930, all through the 30s. There's a real boom, which is completely different at this time. So this time was overbuilding; building, but that time, no.
1: The major, in, in regards to real estate, my, my, my answer is this, is that they had not securitized the debt behind mortgages like they have today. And so what happened is there wasn't a collapse in real estate of the of the level that we're having we're seeing now.
2: No, no, I'm talking yeah. about actually building... No, I understand. And, and this was not buildings all... Yeah. yeah. This was building... High yeah. rise rock High rocks. The city... Uh, no. the, the, the construction... Yeah. Project.
1: Yeah. There were, there were demands there.
2: That it was, uh, that it was uh, money.
1: was borrowed money. It no, it, it was wasn't bad. for borrowed money. You're right. And that, Reg, that is the key. It wasn't for borrowed money. It was, not borrowed. it was not borrowed money. When I first began looking at the Great Depression, one of the questions I had was, where did all the money go? Because you, I would read about the Depression and say, money disappeared. Ah, where did all the money go? And it was unanswered until I read an article around a year and a half ago it was, and, and it said that um, real estate funding had, dry, had, had dropped by 71% in the last year. Wow! 71% in one year. I mean, if you're in the real estate business, that's consequential. 71% drop in the year. And I realized immediately my question was answered. Money hadn't disappeared during the Great Depression, credit did. Money was gone long since real money. It was down the road and it was forgotten. And it was a misnomer to say that money disappeared. Credit disappeared. We had begun to believe that credit was money. The fact you can spend it does not mean credit is money. One of the things that I came to the conclusion of years ago was credit is no more money than power is control. And that's one of the things that makes me feel all right about this. Because those who have a tremendous amount of power aren't in control either. And we enter this era, all of us, even the powerful, uncertain of its outcome. What uh, was the
3: name of this historian?
1: David Hackett Fisher. He wrote a book called The Great Wave and it, it's 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 a wonderful book uh, it's he 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 draws no conclusions he just says this is what it is this is how it is and he's you know you have all these graphs he showed what happened during the victorian era the feudal ages and you know and, and there, there's one in there in fact when we were in Zambute, I tried to look at it because it was the time that you had the first GSUL and he had the map of the, um, of, of, the of the black plague of <laughs> the towns that it went through. I was, you know, because I He had, he had the, uh, a map of the cities but the plague just missed. There were a few that it completely missed. And then there were towns and cities that it went through and 30 years came back again. And so that was the period. And you look back at the, this wave that we're in, the wave that David Hackett Fisher calls the present wave, the one from 1896 to it's going to end wherever it is. This is a like wave a like way. The fact that by age we missed the Great Depression and the two great wars that started this out did not mean it didn't happen. We have lived in a bubble reality in more ways than one. We, this has truly been a bubble, a false reality based on false money. And it has been quite wonderful for most of us but the first half of this great wave two world wars and a depression in between
0: i mean no wonder my parents wanted me to study harder
4: Mm -hmm.
0: errol can i ask a clarification question when you said that the chinese were um, uh, that uh, Kublai khan was Centralizing all the gold and silver in his own treasury and and forcing the people did, did you say he was forcing the people to use the paper money as Tender legal tender for debt or that he was not allowing them to own it at all No, his debt this was money. They, they could keep it. They, oh, so they, could, they could save
1: it. Yeah, in fact the the, the the camel that he sent over with all these little things with chicken and on the writing of the devil He thought and I think he rightly thought, this is a great gift, I'm going to give these guys, I don't know where they're from, but they can come back and buy all this stuff. They can buy all this stuff with it.
0: Like a gift card. I could get yeah. You're right. You, you, so so they, you could, the Chinese people could save sure. their own money sure. in gold and silver yes. that they wanted. Yes. Okay. Is that, but they
1: couldn't use gold and silver as a medium of exchange.
0: It was gone. I couldn't give it to you even if an individual 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 could not freely agree to contract. No. No. Okay. Oh, at at, at the point of death you could,
1: but it was he he raises stakes too high. Hey, uh, listen, I want you to pay me a gold coin.
0: Correct. Okay. (laughs) So was so was a complete uh, complete control. Yeah, complete control.
1: Well, at work, I thought if I talked long enough, you wouldn't have any time for questions. So here we are. Um,
3: this one interesting observation I would like to make about David Hackett Fisher's book. In it, he uh, describes the price waves that happened in, uh, in Spain, 16th century Spain, and I have to look at it just to find out what came first: came the price inflation first, or came the silver first? And, you know the quantity theory of money yeah, That's good. Really so and he mentions that in his book. Um, he falsified it also, inadvertently, I suppose, even lower. But he observes that the silver came after the price inflation, <laughs> <laughs> by about 50 or 60 years. And he immediately falsifies the quantity theory of money. Thank you for that, I would say. But um, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around the discount, um, the discount theory that that should, in fact, have brought down the prices. So there must be some other um, explanation.
4: This paper, paper credit explosion before the silver arrived to Spain, yeah. and the uh, study of the Spanish banking system very clearly shows that. Mm-hmm. So, this was not a precious metal explosion, this was a paper mm-hmm. explosion. Exactly. And it frustrated the banking system not only in Spain, but it spilled over. It went to Italy and other places. I mean, Italy had a wonderful uh, monetary system. It was growing by the time.
3: Mm. Now the the silver that was shipped in should have, according to the discount theory, should have brought down
4: prices. Mm. Uh, well, yes. It's just the opposite of the quantity theory mm. would suggest.
3: They eventually it did. But also, they, you know, the king of Spain had lots of wars
1: going on. There was, I, I, I want to point that out. You bring that up here. It's wonderful. It really is. The enemy of gold is war. It truly is. And I don't know whether it's coincidence that Ludwig von Mises is a pacifist, but he is. And what happened to paper money and why it even came into being was because of war. King William III was bankrupt when he was approached by William Patterson of the Banking Boys. And they said, we'll pay off all your debts. You just give us the monopoly to issue the coin of the realm in paper. <clears throat> and he did because of the wars. He then could mount his battles, he could pay for his navies and go off on his rampage, England's rampage that ultimately became imperialism over the rest of the world on credit. Everybody else had to get gold and silver to do it. So he had the advantage. And this whole present system and our problems are because of the excesses of war. The income tax that we feel is a natural thing happened in England in 1840s because of the Napoleonic Wars. There had never been an income tax in the history of the world before. And there was argument, it's 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 a horrible thing, I know, but we owe all this money and it's temporary. Okay. The gold standard, which was not imposed by legal fiat, it arose because it worked. It arose because it gave us stability to producers and savers and allowed commerce to flourish and people to create savings. It was tossed out by the governments in the early 20th century as they prepared for the great war. They prepared for the great war and they couldn't fight that war if they were tied to a gold standard. After World War II, after a half a century of brutal murder and carnage on the face of this earth, the United States ended up with the largest stash of gold that had ever been accomplished and ever been accumulated by any country, and in 20 years we spent it all on the military, on the military, and we weren't at war. Oh, we had a skirmish in Korea, we had something in Vietnam, but not enough to bankrupt the nation. We have 750. We? I don't. The United States right now has 750 military installations around the world, paying it, paper money. And they did that in 1950, 51, 52, 53, 54. 1958, we weren't in war, and 10% of the money went out. Gold was used only to settle accounts between nations that had a difference in currencies. You had more of mine than I had more of yours. During those 20 years, the United States had a positive balance of trade with the rest of the world. And based on that fact alone, the 21,775 tons should have become at least 26,000 tons by 1970 when Nixon, closed, I mean, when Nixon had to close the gold window because we didn't have enough gold. It was because of corporate overseas expansion and military spending when we were at peace, theoretically, that we blew it. So the true enemy has of gold and of peace and stability has always been war, or might I really call it by its name, is ambition for power. The ambition for power is always Trump the constraint that gold is put around government.
4: Not only is war the enemy of gold, but this relationship is mutual. And let's remind ourselves of the slogan of the Gold Standard Institute. Gold is the enemy of war. War. How is the
1: slogan of the institute? Um, liberty, prosperity, peace.
4: See. Si. See? Si.
1: Yes. Very good.